Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Carla, what a sweetheart. Bart, you ought to date her. I'll just tell you, she's a sweet one. She'd be a winner. A winner for you on that one. I don't know. Now, somebody's going to tell me she's married, right? She... Well, I, I'm, I'm Pastor Daryl Del Husey, and uh, they let me come back one more time. Actually, I get to go back, throw me out next week as well. You know, this is a North Bible Church, uh, emphasis on Bible. We just believe the last thing you need is for me to be up here, or any of us up here, to blow smoke and share with you what we think and our own opinions. And so that's where we're committed to authority of the Scriptures. And we find that the most important thing we can do is just expose you to the scriptures. And, and it's called expository preaching. What that means is, it's not I, I think of some cool ideas and I try to find verses in the Bible, you know, and use them to convince you of what I think. But rather we're exposing what is the intent of the author. Uh, John's the only one who got inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And as your servant and the servant of God, my job is simply to expose just what John was talking about and what he wanted us to know. Uh, John, last living, eyewitness apostle. And most people, they identify him with the book of Revelation, thinking that was the last book he wrote. And then they leave him on the island of Patmos. Have you ever thought if John died after receiving the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos, now there's no medical care, there's no food service, it's a penal island, like a prison, like Alcatraz, right off the coast of Ephesus. And they just leave you there till you rot and die. Well, anything he received would have been fish food as well. And yet we have the book of Revelation. It is because a lot of people don't realize that John gets off the island. Uh, who, the guy who put him there was the emperor of Rome. He's the guy that ruled after Nero, named Domitian. And around AD 95, he gets assassinated by his officials. And his wife is in on it, which has implications, gentlemen, on how you treat your wife as far as that goes. But, but the point being is John goes back to his home church, which is in Ephesus. That's where he had been arrested. And that's where he had taken Mary after Jesus on the cross said, would you take care of my mom? And in Acts 7, there's this explosion of, of persecution against Christians. And so Mary's a marked lady. I mean, she's the mother of the guy causing all the problems in the persecution of the Christians, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So John gets her out of there and takes her as far as he can from Jerusalem, which is in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, to Ephesus. And that's where basically in AD 48, she passes away. There's a big marker called the House of Mary there. But then he goes ahead and he gets arrested there, goes to Patmos, but like I said, Around AD 96, he gets off the island. Now at this time, John's an old man. He's probably in his 80s. And he becomes the presbyteros, the aged one, kind of overseeing these seven churches. Remember in chapters 2 in Revelation, there's those seven letters that Jesus gives to seven different churches? Well, these are them. And John kind of oversees all of those for the rest of his life. Now what's interesting is John gets ticked. Remember, Jesus had nicknamed him the Son of Thunder. But they also called him the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, but John still had this little bit of a... And what he's seeing here, among the younger Christians here in Ephesus and in Asia Minor, that they're starting to get fearful. They're starting, starting to second-guess their faith. That's why he says in chapter 1, verse 4, I've written these things so that your joy 
might be made complete. Remember, the word joy means the absence of fear. Is that you, well, something's causing him to be concerned because these Christians are being fearful in some way. And that's why he ends the book in chapter 5, verse 13 of 1 John. And this is his letter after he writes the book of Revelation. He writes, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might know that you have eternal life. Remember, Jesus himself defined exactly what we mean by eternal life. Doesn't mean you're going to live forever and ever, because you do. All souls don't die. But where are you going to live, and what are you going to be doing for eternity? And that, so Jesus in John 17 said, Lord, I came to give them eternal life, and this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one whom you sent. You see, God's a creator, makes us the creatures. But God's got all kinds of creatures. He's got dogs, cats, worms, bugs, bacteria, and you. But we are created, according to Genesis 1:27, in his image. No angel, does the say in the Bible, has the image of God. No other animal bears the image of God. What is that thing? That means there's something about us that we can actually manifest to people around us and ourselves what our creator's like. And we realize that God did not want the relationship to be creator-creature. And so we're like bugs and animals running around, either ignoring our creator or, or, or fearful of our creator. But God always wanted a relationship of a father to a son, a father to a daughter. That's why you're created in his own image. And you can do what sons and daughters can do. I have two sons. John's 49. Ken's 47. How old am I? And they basically is my sons. Now, by the fact that they're my sons, they can manifest who I am. And as sons, a loving son basically will manifest the values of his father. What his father's like. So it is. That's, that's why in John 1.12 it says, As many as believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to them God gave the authority to become the what? Take a wild guess. Children of God. In Romans 8 and uh, 16 he says, Don't you know, Spirit of God is in you that bears witness with your spirit, reminding you daily of one thing. You're a child of God. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, God says, I will be a father to you, and you'll be sons and daughters to me. That's what eternal life is all about. It's no longer a creature running around with some creator, but rather you are now a child of God with a heavenly father who's engaged with every detail of your life. And deep inside of you, you've got this desire you never had before, and that is to honor God, to show the world what he's like, because people don't have a clue. Now here's the deal is that there were these false teachers called proto-gnostics that were coming into the early church, and they were saying to these Christians, you got it all wrong. See, the Gnostics, some of you might remember Dan Brown's book, The Vinci Code. Boy, did that freak out a lot of Christians. And it was based on the teaching of Gnostics' teachings from books written two, three hundred years after 1 John. And it was written by these Gnostics by that time. And they basically were the original seeker-sensitive people. Kind of like, we don't want to offend. And, and so we're going to blend Christianity, the gospel, with what people already believe. And they were all trained in, in Socrates and Plato, Greek thinking, which is basically this. There's no such thing as sin. You're pure. Your spirit is good. It's just that you are imprisoned in this horrible body. Now, I look in the mirror and I go, what the hell happened? 
you know, and you do feel like you're in prison in this body as you get older, but the reality is that's what they taught. Matter, the body is evil, so whatever the body does, it does what it naturally does. There's no such thing as sin, because the real you is your spirit inside, which means no way did God the Son ever take on an evil body, and no way did he die on the cross. And so there's no such thing as sin, so you don't need the forgiveness of sin. Now, try to combine that with the gospel. Hello! I mean, that just does not blend. And so it leaves these Christians, these newer Christians, so concerned and fearful now, they may not have it right, that John, as a father of the faith, he gets ticked. And you know, I, I love getting older. I'm 73 now, and Holly says I have thinner filters. I tend to just, you know, say what I want to say. I think when I'm 80, Holly's afraid. Pray that I die before I'm 80. Because I'll just spit on people. You know, I mean, really. I, it's like you get so tired of, of dancing around and playing games. And this is what John does in this book. He just cuts it straight. He, he, he says, you know, if you say this, you're a liar. <laughs> you're not allowed to say that politically. He don't, he, he don't care. He's gone. And so the fact, he's not running for office. And so this whole book is John is saying, stop being fearful. I want to make sure you Christians have full assurance. Because if you're doubting that you have a relationship with God, then one of two things happen. If you've got a relationship with anybody, and, and you get insecure, you're not so sure that you have a relationship, you do one of two things. Either one, you get sick and tired and you walk away from it, right? Because you're tired of, tired of trying. Or, you just try to work harder and harder to deserve that relationship. And that's called legalism. And that is not what God the Father wanted from his sons and his daughters. So what John is going to do here is he says, Now I write this book, this letter, so that you might know. The Greek word is oida. It means you can see some experience in your life. And when you look at it, you can go, I know that I have a relationship with God as my heavenly Father. And so the, I call these three spiritual birthmarks. And he summarizes them here in chapter 2. And I just want to share with you the times I have with you. The heart of John, the last living eyewitness apostle, as he writes this book as a loving father of the faith who wants these Christians to not be afraid or begin to doubt their relationship with God. So he says, let me give you the three tests. Let me give you the three spiritual birthmarks. So remember last week, we exposed you to the first one, which was in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And it came down to this. He says, by this we know we've come to know him. What's the this? How do I know that I have a relationship with God? We keep his commandments. You go, oh, great. I failed the first one. Shoot me now. Well, no, no. The word keep doesn't mean obey, because he's already talked about the fact that we sin. Remember how he began the chapter? I write these things so that you don't sin. But when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So he knows we blow it. We're humans. We, we mess up all the time. But this word here, guard, word is tereo, keep the commandments. It means we look at the commandments of Christ differently than other people do. People think commandments is a burden, like a lot of rules, rituations, you know, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. I mean, you know, that makes me a good Christian. That makes my dog a good Christian. I mean, we, all of a sudden we fall and slip into this religion uh, of being Christian instead of realizing it's, not a it's a relationship. And don't slip into a religion. So how do you keep it a relationship with God as your heavenly Father? It says the first thing is this. Ezekiel 20, 36 
says that, well, let's back up. Remember when Jesus met with Nicodemus in John 3 that one night? Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, shows up. Doesn't want anybody to know he's there. And that's when he's asking Jesus, he says, well, I know you're a good teacher because, boy, everybody's taking a good look at you and look what you're p- pulling off. So he says to Jesus, can I ask you one question? How do I enter into the kingdom of God? Good question. Now, this is one of the teachers of the Jews. And that's when Jesus said, you must be born again. Like I said, it wasn't Jimmy Carter who came up with that. Those of you who are older, you know what I'm talking about. The fact it was Jesus. And when Jesus, and of course Nicodemus is a post. He just kind of goes, well, boy, my mom's not going to be excited about that one. I mean, how do you enter into the womb of your mother again? And, you know, Jesus, I'm sure he felt like, you idiot. But he, Jesus is classier than I am. He just simply said, you must be born of water and spirit. Now, people get all kind of weirded out. What is born of water and spirit? Nicodemus knew that. Every Jewish rabbi knew it because the most famous prophetic statement of the coming of Messiah was Ezekiel 36. That said that when the Messiah comes, he'll not only wash, cleanse your sins away, that's the water, but he'll also, it says, I will pull out your old heart, put a new heart in you, for I will place my spirit, part of God himself, his Holy Spirit, in you. And he will cause you to walk in my statutes. When you came to Christ, all of a sudden you had this deep, deep desire. The Hebrew language did not have the word for mind way back then. So they talk about the heart. And your heart was your center of volition, your choice, what you really want. And he says, all of a sudden you're going to have a desire you never had before. And the desire is simply this. You have become a son. You have become a daughter with the Heavenly Father. And like any son and daughter, you have a deep desire to honor God as your father. Not fear him as creator, but honor him as your father. Knowing that he's engaged in your life because he views you as a son and a daughter. That's why he works all things together for good. To those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What purpose? To become his children. So what you have here is that people say, well, I've saved, my sins are forgiven. Oh, that's not all. Two things happen when you received Christ. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, now when you were saved, he says, you were first washed with regeneration. You were washed of your sins. There's the water. But he says, you were also quickened, regenerated. And what is that? The word literally means something was dead in you and it was made alive. What was dead in me? So like I say, listen, I said, I think last week, say you and I are friends. And, and, and we have a big falling out, and so I hate your guts, all right? Or you hate my guts. No, I'll have you. I'll hate your guts. And, and you die. I'm so sad, but big payoff life insurance. He's dead. But I, they, they asked me to do a service. So I'm there. He's in the casket. And I say, you know, I feel so badly. I had this big fight with him. And, and so I forgive you. I actually wash you away of all the sins against me. You're forgiven. Now, what kind of friendship do we have from that point on? You're dead. I mean, take you out for a drag? What? I mean, you're dead. The fact is, the only way there's going to be a relationship is two things got to happen. One, the sins were forgiven, washed away, but born of water and spirit, what? God placed his spirit within you and made your soul alive, made your spirit alive. At that point, you had those desires. That's the new heart. And we saw, we saw that the first birthmark is you have this desire to want to honor God, but you don't have a clue. How? 
remember, we, we, we know a guy. There is a guy who actually, for his whole life, honored God with everything he said, everything he did. Who's the guy? Who's the guy that heard from heaven? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Twice at his baptism and his transformation, transfiguration. And so Jesus is the guy. So yeah, he's the provision for the forgiveness of our sin, but he's also the pattern. And that's why we're disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not disciples of the Father, and we're not disciples of the Holy Spirit. We're disciples of Jesus Christ, because he's the one we follow. I follow Christ. Why? Because I want to learn to be like him. Why? Because I want to honor God as my Father. That's my heart's desire. But how am I going to do that? Well, Jesus gives commands. And all of a sudden, instead of commands being such a burden, I realize the commands are my friends. The commands are actually the very means that now I know how to be like Christ, the commands of Christ. And because I can be more like him, guess what I'm doing? My deepest heart's desire is to what? Honor God as my father. So the first birthmark is that I view the commands of Christ. I don't blow them off. I don't mock them. I don't ignore them. They're a big deal to me. Well, when did it become a big deal? It's, it's evidence that the Spirit of God is within me and gave me that new heart. Now there's a second birthmark. And that picks up in chapter 2, verse 7. Now here's what John says. Beloved. Seven times he's going to refer to these people as beloved. Tertullian tells us that John never got married, never had kids. So the church became his family. And, and as, as a presbyteros, a, a father of the faith, he viewed the church as his own children. So he says, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard. But now on the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you. Now, it sounds like he's selling a car. I mean, is the picket thing old or is it new? Like, you know, well, it's an old car. Well, really, it's not an old car. It's a new car. Well, it's not really a new car. It's an old car. Well, what is it, John? Well, he goes on. He says, on the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him, in you, because the darkness is passing away. True light is already shining. He says, the one who says he's in the light and he hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, doesn't even know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now it talks about this command to love. What command to love? Well, how was this old? Well, it goes all the way back to Leviticus 19, chapter 19, verse 18, when Moses, and that's pretty old, says, that you are to love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. So it's an old command. It's been around for a long, long time. But now John's making reference to, well, but it's a new commandment. Now, now the Greeks, if they wanted to talk about something brand new that you never had before, they use this word neos. But if they want to talk about something you had before, but now it's revived into something new, they use the word kainos. Guess what word he uses here? Take a wild guess. Kainos. So in what sense is this command to love your neighbor as yourself all of a sudden becomes new? Because in John 13, this is now Jesus. He's in the upper room. He's going to be arrested in about three, four hours. Crucified in about seven hours. He's not blowing smoke. This is not a good time. And he's with his apostles. 
And he's having a very serious talk. And he says in John 13, verse 34 and 35, Now this command I give unto you. Now the guys were shocked. The word command is entole in the Greek. And Jesus didn't use it very much. And so the guys pop up, what command? He says, this command I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. For if you love one another as I have loved you, all men will know you're not phonies. All men will know you're not hypocrites. All men will know you are my disciples. Now that, that's an interesting thing. He commands this love. Well, first of all, what's so new about it? What's different? Well, what did Moses say? Love your neighbor as yourself. But what made it new is Jesus didn't say, now this command I give unto you, that you love one another as yourself. That's not what he said. What did he say? This command I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So it's no longer about you and how much you know. I love me. I think I'm grand when I go to the show. I hold my hand, put my hand above my waist. When I get fresh, I slap my face. I mean, it's not about your love for yourself. My BA's in psychology, and it was all about loving yourself. Give a, give a, give a old self, hug, 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 hug. And then only if I love myself can I love you. He's saying, you're not the issue. You're a disciple of Christ. So we love like Christ loved. So how did Christ love? You know, the word love is really mysterious. You know, there, there's a group of children. I love these. Uh, they were, we were asked, and these children were asked, uh, what does love mean? And uh, Rebecca, she's eight, said when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. For Rebecca, that was love. For little uh, Carl, he's five, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> See, that's, that's love. Now, Terry, who's age four, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. I like Bobby, age seven. Love is what is in the room when you are at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Matter of fact, I read this one. It's interesting. One little four-year-old boy went over to his next-door neighbor who was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife, crawled up onto her lap and just sat there for a while. When his mother asked what he said, uh, uh, what did he say to the little guy? And this is what he said. Nothing. I just helped him cry. You know, we, we do the aw uh, cry. The love thing is interesting. You know John, who writes his gospel? 21 chapters. He uses the word love 45 times. But in this little book, five chapters. First John, 46 times. Kind of like the big deal with John is this love thing. I, I think I told you last week, but when he was so old, Jerome, at a fourth century father, tells us that when he got so old he couldn't walk anymore, they would carry him from church to church. Like my little pallet, just carry him from church to church. People would show up because they want to hear what the last living eyewitness apostle to the resurrected Christ had to say. And Jerome tells us all he would say is what? My little children love one another. Love one another. Love one another. This was like a big deal to John. They pushed back. They wanted no more. And he would respond by saying, 
When you love one another, it's a command of Christ. It is all sufficient. It's like if we're going to take everything down to one thing, it's this love thing. So we're supposed to love one another. Now, we throw the word love and we go, oh, I, I, I love my wife of 52 years. I love my dog. Um, there's a kind of a difference there. And you don't really hear it in the English, do you? But the Greeks had four different words. They had the word eros, like erotic love. It was emotion. It was passion. It, 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 it's kind of like what Bart's going to have for care. No. Uh, it, whatever it is. It's an emotion. It's an affection. It's a caring. But it is an emotion. Nothing's wrong with it. It's great. But it's something you feel. Problem is you cannot command a feeling. You cannot command emotion. Now the Greeks had the, Greeks had the word philo. So if, if you had like a lot of your girlfriends and you had one thing you girls all love to do together, whatever it is, I'd say bake cookies, but you'd say you are so sick, old man. So I don't know what it would be, all right? Uh, uh, so let's say it's a certain video game. But you all just love this video game. You go crazy about this video game. You have this affection for each other. You call it friendship. Greece call it philo. It's an emotion. But it's when you have this something you share common with someone else and you have this affection for each other but it's an affection. It's a feeling. But you can't command a feeling. Now, they also had the word storge. That's kind of like when you're stuck with Uncle Bowman and Aunt Zelma. That's, that's parental. That's family love. That's kind of the love you got to kind of have because they're blood and they're family, all right? But it is still an emotion. That kind of love sometimes a irritating emotion, but it's an emotion. Now, here's my question. If... Eros, philo, storge, are all kinds of love, but emotions. Where does Jesus get off commanding? This commandment I give unto you to what? Love one another as I've loved you. How can he do that if love's an emotion? Well, because there's a fourth word. You don't see it a lot in Greek literature. You see it a lot in the New Testament. And this word is the word Agape. The, the verb is agapao. And what's interesting about the word and why it's not real popular in Greek literature because all it means is to make the choice to value something and care about its well-being. has nothing to do with emotion. Nothing to do with feeling. I cannot like you, but if I recognize that you bear the image of God, you're worth Jesus Christ to the Father, and therefore I respect your dignity and care about your well-being by choice. That's the word he uses. So when he talks about love, it's not kissy-facey, huggy-body stuff. Uh, it looks really weird, you know, in the church. But rather, it is a choice. Now, why would I ever make a choice to recognize that you bear the image of God, you're worth Jesus Christ to the Father, and therefore I recognize your great worth because he's my heavenly Father, he values you, I value what my father values. How is it that I'm going to recognize your dignity? Answer, who is it in me that causes me to recognize the worth of others? It's the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is spiritual birthmark too. And so the, the evidence of the Spirit of God in me is I meet some of you for the very first time and instantly I still recognize, ha, huh, you bear the image of God. Ah, oh, you're worth Jesus Christ to the Father. 
Ha! You're the hottest thing in this universe outside of the Trinity. And therefore, I care about your well-being. Now, at first, you might think, well, that sounds pretty cold. I mean, I just care about your well-being. I, I forget who I told what. So forgive me if I already told you. But I, I, I still remember what Holly taught me. I got married when I was 20. I, I wasn't done pubertating yet. And yet. But, you know, I'm French. I wanted to be a virgin. And you get married young. So I remember that we're in Carmel, our honeymoon. We're in line. And this lady's got this poodle that's dressed better than I am. And, 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 and she's just taking all time. And, and when you've been a virgin, you kind of want the line to move quickly because we're moving in. Well, that's enough. We got children. Anyway, the point being, I'm sitting there agitated because this gal's taking so much time so I can't sign up and get into our room and have a Bible study, of course. <laughs> All right, have a Bible study. All right? But the point is this. I remember she was kissing, smooching this poodle, and I said, Holly, yeah. And, and Holly said, you know, when you treat something precious, it becomes precious to you. I've never forgotten that. Because you choose Choice, forget your feeling. But if you choose to recognize that something is precious and you treat it as precious, guess what happens? It starts becoming precious to you. And that's when we as Christians begin to share even an affection for each other. So as he talks about this birthmark, he basically says, now the opposite, if you hate, now that's kind of harsh. What, what is hate? Let's, let's finish this up. Hate is the opposite of love, right? If agape is to recognize the worth of somebody and care about their well-being, what is the purest form of hate? To be absolutely indifferent to somebody's worth and not care about their well-being. Now, either you're one way or the other. If you're a child of God and the Spirit of God's within you, then you recognize the great worth of human beings. You care about their well-being and especially those who are brothers, sisters in Christ. But if you are really totally indifferent, you are so into yourself, you're so self-absorbed, that the only person you figure has any dignity is yourself, and you only care about yourself and the well-being of yourself, then basically, according to John, remember he's an old guy, and we get away with it, you hate. And there's no evidence that the Spirit of God is within you. See, this isn't all about, well, you know, I want to just love, 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 love. No, this is a spiritual birthmark that you take a look at your own life. John says, I've written these things that you might oida, know, that you have eternal life, a relationship with your heavenly Father. He says, there's evidence the Spirit of God is in you. Your sins have not only just been forgiven, but he gave you a new heart, placed part of himself, his Spirit within you. You are now a son, a daughter with a heavenly Father, and the Spirit of God causes you to have this deep desire first, to honor God as your father, therefore you, you embrace the commands of Christ. They're your friends because they're the very means to help you fulfill what you deeply want to do because you want to be more like Christ because he did it right. He's the guy. But spiritual birthmark number two, I, whether I know somebody, like somebody, I recognize. The Bible's over here. Putin bears the image of God. Pretty smudged, but he still created a human being. And I think of all that he's doing. Innocent lives being taken. 
So do I hate him? Am I indifferent to his worth? I may pray for God to take him somewhere. But the fact still is, down deep, what did Paul say? What do we do to our enemies? We still pray for them. And why do we pray for them? Because they bear the image of God. They're worth Jesus Christ as the Father, whether they know it or not. Now there's the test. It is so easy to hate people. And I can hate people as much as anybody in the world, and the whole world will know that I'm just like them. But as a child of God, just like them. So that's where it gets really serious. Sober. Now don't run out and get a t-shirt, I love Putin. I mean, don't be stupid. That's not what I'm talking about. Or Bart, that's not what I'm talking about, Bart, okay? But rather, down in your soul, to pray for the people that are tragic, that are evil. But how much easier it is to be able to therefore pray and love and care about the well-being of your Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. So it comes down, you argue from the harder to the easier. And all of a sudden, it's really easy for me to love you guys, care about your dignity. And how do you communicate worth? How do you communicate love? Well, if you look at chapter 4, we don't have time, but uh, chapter 4, verse 10, he says basically that God basically sent his son as a sacrifice to be a propitiation for our sin. Satisfaction, payment. Boils down to this. Whenever I initiate, it's my idea, an action, something I do that cost me something, sacrifice, time, energy, reputation, whatever it is, to meet a real need, I've just communicated worth. And that's what we're supposed to be all about. Thinking of ways how we can initiate different things we can do that may cost us something. And by the way, the greater the sacrifice, the greater what's communicated. The greater worth is communicated. So like I say, this is not emotions, not kissy-facey, huggy body. It's not who can go ahead and give the uh, hardest hug. That's easy. Some people are huggers and others kind of, <laughs> you know. That's not the issue. But the issue is that you ask yourself, and I close with this. In my life, do I really embrace the commands of Christ? Do I, do I really see the commands of Christ? And all I got to do is read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's all right there. It's all right there. Do I really want to follow Christ and be like him? Because I want to honor God as my father. Yes or no? It's birthmark number two. Do I have a sense that I do recognize? Don't always like people, but I recognize that people have dignity. They are created in the image of God. And therefore, I care about their soul, their well-being. So I initiate actions of self-sacrifice to meet needs if I can. Yes or no? That's the second birthmark. There's a third one, and the third one nails the first two. And uh, you got to know the third one, or the first two make no sense. But we're done, so I'll have to come back next week and share the third one with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity to share with friends. Lord, I pray, and I know only your spirit can touch a soul. So I pray that your spirit would take these words, even from the Apostle John, and penetrate our hearts. Lord, so that we would be able to walk worthy of that great calling to which you've called us. 
that we would remember the commands of Christ. We want to honor you, Father, every day. That's our prayer. And so we want to be like Christ. We follow him. And then, Lord, help us the way we love. Let's not wait till we feel something, but just out of obedience. It's your great command that we recognize the worth of others, care about their well-being. Whatever it takes, Lord. Even the poor guy begging on the corner, it's not so much to give him money, but just to look at him and nod, acknowledge his existence, to acknowledge his dignity, even with a little board where he's begging for money. Let us be people, Father, who just celebrate the dignity, the value that you created on human beings. Lord, that is supernatural. And let it be true of us, we ask in the name of Christ. God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.